left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. So that's a big one for me is getting a feeling of how conservative I feel the business plan is, particularly in a value add type of scenario. Do I feel they're going to be able to execute on it in the time frame that they projected or faster? Faster is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But are they saying it's going to be much faster than I think is feasible is a big one for me. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is MC Lobsher from Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm very happy today to have Taylor Lote with me. He's the founder of NT Capital and the host of the Passive Wealth Strategy podcast. He teaches busy professionals how they can invest in real estate without dealing with tenants, toilets, and termites. Sounds great to me. Taylor, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited for the opportunity to be on the show, share my journey and lessons that I've learned along the way. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being here. You know, your podcast was one of the first ones I was a guest on. So it's been, it took me too long to get you on here, but we're pleased to have you. And the way we typically start, as you mentioned, we'd love to hear about your journey. How did you get into investing? How'd you get into real estate? How'd you get into syndications and and the podcast, the whole nine yards? So if you can kind of uh, give us your journey to start, that'd be great. Love talking about my journey. And this is something I was actually thinking about and reflecting on recently. And I had this realization recently that the earliest money decision I remember making was switching to a bank back in the days when banks actually paid something, switching to a bank where I could get a money market account. And at the time it paid 5%. And I'm old enough that I worked, I had a job at Sears for one. It wasn't my first job. It was actually my third job. Had a little bit of money coming in. It was back in high school. And that was also back in the day when banks, again, paid something, when interest rates were a little bit higher. And I made the decision, hey, I want to turn this tiny little bit of money that I make into more money. And the only way I knew how to do that was through interest paid on a bank account. So I went and found another bank that was paying 5% made that switch and I got a little maybe $100 for setting up the direct deposit. And uh, that's really the first decision that I remember making targeted toward turning my money into more money, all those, you know, half a lifetime ago or a little, little over half a lifetime ago. And uh, since then, it's just been building on, you know, that mentality of turning money into more money. So that's your start, right? You're earning mm-hmm. some interest. How did you then go into real estate? How did you find, well, okay, a bank will pay me 5%, real estate will pay me, <laughs> you know, presumably more with all these other benefits. So how did you, how did you make that transition from Sears, you know, working at Sears to, uh, to what you're doing now? Yeah. Happy to go through that. So that was in high school, right? I ended up going to college. I got a degree in uh, chemical engineering and took some classes in economics as well. Got out and got a big boy job and thought, well, Hey, now I've got more money coming in than I've ever had. It was pretty modest salary at the time, but how do I turn this into more money? I need to upgrade. I need to find something else. And plus 
this was in the wake of the Great Recession when banks were paying, you know, nothing on and, you know, still we are today where they're, they're paying nothing. So I went out and got a copy of The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Read through that. It's a very dense book, but it basically teaches you about value investing in the stock market. I was a very frugal guy at the time, and I'm still very frugal today. So I had a lot of money left over. I was just socking it away in the markets, you know, investing as much as I could in retirement accounts and then in brokerage accounts and uh, with an eye on value and index funds and all those all those kinds of things. And then years went by and I was looking at it and I was thinking, okay, great, I've got all this accumulated, but I'm doing the math looking forward. I'm also looking at any kind of benefit or considering any kind of benefit that I'm getting out of my stock investing at the time. And I'm realizing, well, hey, this isn't going to do anything for me in the shorter term, but basically before I'm in my 60s, it's not providing me any benefit. I'm just socking it away for you know when I'm old. So I need to find another way to get passive income coming in, get my money working for itself. And so I was listening to podcasts, learned about real estate investing, and I was kind of in the back of my mind and I was kind of at a crossroads at a certain point. So I had this degree in, in chemical engineering and I thought, well, I need to go earn more money. And the way most people are familiar with earning more money is go down the typical path of get more education. So I worked on getting an MBA, studied, took the test and to apply for business school, took the GMAT, got a pretty good score. Starting on my applications, I just so happened to hear about this book on a real estate podcast. I have my, one of my copies sitting here, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read that book and I thought, well, now I'm not going to business school. I have my new path in real estate investing. So dug into real estate investing, learned about all the various different strategies in there. You know, Started with single family investing, at least learning about single family investing. And I kind of instinctively knew that that wasn't the path for me. It just didn't have that, didn't give me that spark of excitement about the possibilities in the space. Continued learning. I was listening to podcasts at the time. Eventually, I learned about real estate syndication. And I had a light bulb moment when I heard about real estate syndication because it helped me see how people invest in all of these big assets that we see around us. And specifically, I remember the realization that I had at the time. So again, rewinding back to my value stock investing days. One day I was driving to work at a, frankly, a job that I didn't like. This is many, many years ago, back in 2011 or so. So in the morning, driving my 2001 Volkswagen Jetta to work, and I drove past the office of the townhome complex that I lived in at the time and just happened to glance and look at the car that was parked in the parking lot of the office. I saw it was an Audi A8, and I lived in a decent townhome complex, but not a townhome complex where Audi A8s were parked. And I like cars, and I thought, wow, I bet whoever drives that is probably the owner of this townhome complex. I don't know how they did it. Maybe they had a lot of money. I don't, I don't know the, uh, how do you even buy a townhome complex? I don't know, but I know I like Audi A8s. And I just kind of filed that memory in my mind. Years later, I learned about real estate syndication and it hit me. That's how that person owns that Audi A8. You know, I bet they didn't have all the money to buy this townhome complex. They probably syndicated it. They probably put the funds together from passive investors to buy this property and that's how they got that awesome car. And that just hit me. That's what gave me that spark, that feeling of, oh man, this is the strategy for me. And I just kind of took it from there, kept going from there. That is a great story. So my question is, when you figured out that syndication was for you, because I also went through a similar journey in some ways, and I also found out syndication was for me. And I was at a, a syndication seminar Right. And I, I was positive I wanted to be a syndicator. And I went to that seminar and I dug in and I learned everything. And I left that seminar knowing absolutely I did not want to be a syndicator. I wanted to be a <laughs> passive investor. So I know how your story goes, right? You became a syndicator. So is that when you heard about syndications, you thought, I want to be the apartment owner rather than the investor? Well, it's really a little bit of both. I want to do both. I mean, truthfully, if, if I could just do the passive investing and just live on that passive cash flow. I mean, awesome. That's great. That is a great end goal. But at least now today, 
I'm 32. I mean, I'd certainly love to be able to retire, but I really have the desire to go sit on a beach and live on passive cash flow for the rest of my life. I've got a lot ahead of me. I've got a lot of goals that I want to go after. Plus, this stuff is just fun. I mean, we're sitting here on this podcast. We're having a great conversation. I host my own podcast with great people like you. I get to talk to you guys. I get to have fun. I get to learn. I get to go to these events and learn more about real estate investing. I get to build you know, my own brand, my own real estate investments. I mean, doing this stuff on both sides, both as a passive investor and an active investor is fun. I mean, you know, I've got no problem playing kind of both sides of the coin as a passive participant and, you know, more on the active side as well. Yeah. And what, what you said, you know, the, the secret to podcasting or the unknown benefit of being a podcaster is you get to, inter- I get to interview people like you, right? And so I get all of this knowledge and that's why podcasting is so great because you're constantly talking to people and learning and sharing ideas. And that's a huge benefit. The other thing you said that I really liked was there's no current benefit from investing in some of those retirement accounts and in the market when you're doing the stock market. And that, that I think is really, really well said. It's really powerful to think of it that way is so many people are working at their W-2 jobs and putting all of their money into retirement accounts so they can use it when they're older, where with real estate, you kind of do both, right? You're collecting the cash flow and then the appreciations on the back end. And that could be, you know, throw that into your retirement account if you really want to. But Talk a little bit about how you look at that from, you know, the aspect of you're getting cash flow now, you're getting the benefit now rather than the benefit later, or maybe you're getting both. Yeah. I mean, you can have both and what's right for every individual investor. They need to think about their own priorities and figure that out. But really, I think the realization that I had was, okay, I'm buying these stocks or these index funds to basically sell them to somebody else for more later because maybe they'll be willing to pay more later for you know these index funds or whatever I'm investing in. And the whole time I'm sitting on it, I'm not getting anything back out of it. Maybe I'm getting like a 1% dividend or something like that, which, you know, fine, I'm not complaining about that, but it's also just not that much money. So once I learned again about cash flow through reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and then learning more about real estate investing more broadly and different strategies, and how you can build cash flow and use leverage and you know look invest for the long term while getting benefits in the short term that's just you know that just made a lot of sense to me right and that that helped me understand how people are able to retire in a shorter time frame through real estate investing than through you know stock and bond investing because i i don't really i know a lot of people who have retired through real estate investing i can't really think of anybody that i know who's retired early through investing in stocks. I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know them. I haven't found them. Not, not very common, right? And, that, and that's, you know, we, we have a lot of the same viewpoints. And for me, it's the investing in the stock market is speculation, right? Because you're just hoping it goes up in value. You're hoping to sell it for more to somebody else. And it's all just, it's hope. Hope isn't a strategy, right? Where real estate investing, you're investing for cash flow. Mm-hmm. And that's what's feeding your money-making machine. And then the hope part, is the appreciation, but that's not even that's not hope because the syndicator presumably is doing something to increase the value of the property through forcing equity. So even that isn't hope. You have two, you know, fairly certain things that are going to happen. I mean, the markets can change and there's all kinds of, you know, but it's not like the stock market. So I feel like real estate is investing and the stock market is speculating. It's interesting that we kind of both are on the uh on the same page there, but I guess that's why we're both kind of doing the same (laughs) stuff, right? That makes sense. I want to talk about your meetup because community is one of the things that is really important to me. And and I think that's what makes a lot of us at Left Field Investors better at investing, right? Because we're sharing ideas, we're sharing trusted partners, and, and we're really learning together. And, you know, I was doing a little bit of research. It looks like you started a meetup. So, are you still doing that meetup? Can you tell us a little bit about it and what you've gotten from it and where it is now? Sure, absolutely. So I started that meetup in, oh boy, 2017 or 18. It's a little fuzzy now. I guess I'm getting early onset dementia or something like that. Oh no, I can't, <laughs> I just can't remember when I started. It was, a, it was a number of years ago. And then, you know, COVID hit and threw a wrench into things. So we were no longer able to meet in person. Here we are in the spring of 2022, and some of the spaces still haven't opened back up. The space that I use is still 
we're, we're hoping to get it back really soon. So I want to bring it back in person very soon, hopefully uh, this year. So when COVID hit, you know, we paused for a little while. I've done a number of online meetings as well, bringing in guest speakers and doing um, breakout rooms. People are a big fan of those. Put, you know, three people in a break, four people in a breakout room, give them a topic to discuss and get to do a little bit of networking. It's not quite the same as meeting in person. Of course, meeting in person is, I think, really the best option. And, uh, you know, I think we'll be able to get back to doing that soon. As far as, you know, the benefits that it's had for for me and my business and for our attendees. I mean, it's so much. You meet a lot of great people. I've brought you know investors into our deals that I've met through hosting my meetup. We've helped people learn about different strategies that they might not know about. I mean, in 20, I think it was 2019, uh, Paul Moore from Wellings Capital came and spoke for us. He lives just a couple hours away from me and he lives in Lynchburg. I live in Richmond. We had one of the guys from the Spartan, Spartan Investment Group come out. Uh, Ryan Gibson came out and spoke for us about storage property investing. We've had other people from the area come out and and talk. And you know, really, my goal was to talk about real estate at a higher level than the typical real estate networking event. And what I mean by that is, and there's nothing wrong with this, but this is just not the discussion that I wanted to have is I didn't want to have the conversation about get into real estate with no money down or teach people about how to wholesale real estate or kind of those different strategies that are maybe a little more dime a dozen. I wanted to talk about bigger deals, commercial deals, more advanced topics that the average networking group might not get around to. And also, you know, higher dollar type of activities that is a little more niche and a little more nuanced than you know, somebody may be selling a, a wholesaling course. Again, not to denigrate on that, but if you go to enough right. real estate networking events, you're going to run into a lot of those guys. And that went well. It was, it was a lot of fun. It's also a lot of work to manage that event, but it's really the best way to build connections is to go meet people in person. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, Head on over to TribeVest.com today. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, we're happy that, uh, you know, left field investors probably wouldn't exist in its current form. It certainly wouldn't without the pandemic because that mm -hmm. put us online and that allowed us to really branch out throughout the country and even, even overseas. But it doesn't replace in person. And, you know, Zoom breakout rooms are rough, right? But they're it's necessary, <laughs> but rough. And I would encourage you and anyone else listening, Steve Sue, one of our founders, found a site called wonder.me. And it's awesome because it's like little, you put topics in a space, right? And the internet on this, just on a blank web page, I guess. And you can drag your avatar from one conversation to the other. And when you drag it in there, you're in that space. So you can, hmm. it's like breakout rooms, but you can move from one to the other really easily. So that's not really on the topic of investing, but it is on the topic of community. And it really is, uh, it's so much better than Zoom breakout rooms. So you should check that out. <laughs> I want to pivot a little bit to sponsors, right? You are a sponsor. How would you vet when you do your own in that passive investing for yourself? How do you vet a sponsor? What are some questions that you ask? And then on the flip side, as a sponsor, what questions sometimes do you get that people ask that? And maybe don't really that aren't necessary or aren't really um, helpful for them. Like what questions could we avoid? So what questions do you ask and what questions maybe aren't necessary? Interesting. So first off, let's start with, you know, what questions I ask. My goal is to understand the sponsor 
know the sponsor well enough and understand the deal well enough that I don't really have that many questions to ask at the end of the day when a deal comes up. So I look at these things in, in a long, as a, with a long-term perspective as in that I want to build a relationship with a sponsor before I really dive into investing with them on a deal. I want to understand how their business works. I want to understand how they operate, if they behave in an ethical manner and things along those lines. I want to know what they look for, how experienced they are, how well focused they are on particular markets. Are they kind of scattershot all over the place or do they focus on a handful of markets to invest in, meaning they they understand those markets very well? So those are things that I want to understand up front. I also really, I want to make sure I speak with some of their passive investors before I invest. Now, I don't ask them to give me references because they're going to give me the best references that they can find. And, and I wouldn't blame them for that. That's what anybody would do. I get out there and this is where we go back to networking. I talk to people and I ask them, who do you invest with? How has that experience been? And if you ask people that offline, non-recorded in a you know private conversation, they will tell you everything because they want to, you know, people in this space in particular, they want to spread that knowledge. They want to help you out. And I've learned really the most about individual sponsors by just asking people, asking, I, I have friends who listen to your show and I ask them about, you know, sponsors that they've invested with and, and they'll tell you. So I think that's really the biggest thing to do is to get out there and ask other passive investors who they invest with and how their experiences have been. Now, when we're digging into a particular deal, I'll look at the deal. I'll Google the actual property. So I'll, I'll look the property up and just make sure it's there. I mean, that's number one, but right. by that point, I know that the sponsor exists. So I, you know, I have a lot of trust in them. I'll look at the property. I'll look at the market. I'll dig into the underwriting. I got I like to hold up books here, even though we're not using a video. One of my favorite books is What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow and 36 Other Key Financial Me Measures by Frank Gallinelli. That talks all about underwriting commercial real estate. And some of the numbers are kind of dated because the book was written a while ago. Cap rates have compressed, things along those lines. But understanding how underwriting works is very important, in my opinion, for passive investors, obviously for active investors, but for passive investors as well. So I'll check the sponsor's math. I'll just do a spot check. I mean, again, engineering, I've got no problem plugging stuff into Excel and just making sure that they ran the numbers correctly. And believe it or not, I have found math errors in sponsors, you know, underwriting and deals that they put out. Sometimes those math errors are effectively a rounding error. It doesn't make that big of a difference at the end of the day. And some of the time they're a little bit more uh, consequential, if you will, to the final return. And, and in my opinion, if you're going to be investing 50, 100, 200,000 plus dollars in a deal, why not take some time to, again, check the math regarding coming back to the sponsor with questions. If, if that math doesn't come up right, then, well, I'm out of the deal, but I might point that out and ask a question about it. But when we get into the legal documents, obviously I read all of those. If I'm again, following up with questions about them, but a lot of the time, if I have a major question, I'm just not, I'm not going to invest in the deal. If it's something minor clarifying, then, then I'll go back and, you know, ask for clarification about it. And uh, I suppose that's my thought process for going through a deal, but Really, most of the work is on the front end and understanding the sponsor and, and what they go after, the types of deals that they look at, and really avoiding the feeling of FOMO in that if they send me a deal, even if I'm very interested in investing with them, maybe the deal is going to fill up very quickly. Okay, I'm not, I'm purposefully not going to feel the FOMO. I'm going to read everything. I'm going to make my decision about whether this is a type of deal that I'm interested in, how they do these deals, so that next time, I can evaluate the next deal from this same sponsor much more quickly and be more prepared to make a decision about it. So vetting the sponsor, reading through everything and trying to avoid the feeling of FOMO because the best sponsors will always have another deal. There's going to be one coming down the line. It might be a little while, right? But that's okay. Just want to be ready for the next one. That is, there's some great advice in there. I mean, fantastic. So finding sponsors, right? You're asking your community, you're going to your network and you're asking other investors who have invested with them, hey, what did you like about this sponsor? Tell me about that sponsor. And that is 
really the, the most powerful thing about the left field investing community or any community, right, is the fact that you can't walk out your front door and talk to a neighbor about real estate syndications, right? They're going, what? <laughs> real estate? That's super risky. And what, what do you, what's a syndication, right? So where do you go? So you create these communities and that's where you go. And that's where you use other people to find out, right? Instead of asking the sponsor, the syndicator, hey, tell me some people who, who are satisfied investing with you. Like you said, of course, you're going to get all the best, best ones, but talk to real people who have nothing to gain from sharing this. But people love to share the information, right? Good and bad experiences. I think that's mm -hmm. super powerful. And the other thing I really liked about what you said is the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. And um, I had MC Laubscher on, on the podcast, and he says instead of FOMO, he has JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. And it's super <laughs> powerful to hear that, right? And what it means is exactly what you said. It's okay to miss a deal. They're going to have another one. Mm -hmm. If there's pressure, like you know these deals are you know going to fill up in a day, fine. Underwrite that one afterwards and wait for the next one because it's probably fits in the same box. So I think that's really powerful. And then you also talked about if there's something big that you don't like about the deal, you're out, right? So can you talk about maybe what some of those things would be the deal breakers? I get it. If they did all the math wrong, you know, you're not concerned about their math skills. You're concerned about their attention to detail. But what are some other deal breakers when you're looking at a deal or even when you're evaluating a sponsor that you say, you know what? There's plenty of sponsors out there. I'm, I'm moving on. Or there's plenty of deals out there. I'm moving on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at an individual deal, it gets into a lot of the nuances. So I want to understand the plan, right? So if we're talking about, say, a multifamily value add syndication, the plan is probably to acquire the property, do some renovations of the units over time, raise the rents, and then sell down the road. Pretty standard business model. A lot of people are executing on it now. Well proven, right? But there are plenty of say mistakes that can be made along the way. A big thing for me is, and this gets into feelings rather than data, which is what makes it nuanced. But when I review a business plan and I look at the timing of the business plan, how do I feel about the sponsor's ability to execute on that timing of the business plan? Plus their ability to execute on the business plan is very important, but metrics like IRR, are heavily time dependent. And by kind of moving things around a little bit in the underwriting, basically accelerating the time frame, you can juice that IRR stat quite a bit. And that's the number that a lot of sponsors are going to present as you know a, a metric to evaluate a deal. And a lot of passive investors who, who haven't dug into the nuances of how IRR works will just look at that number and not really understand it, but see a big number and say, I'm in. So I'm going to be very concerned about whether the business plan can be executed as underwritten. If I'm looking at the business plan and I think they can do it faster than they've underwritten, then that's actually good because that's a sign that they're probably being more conservative than I think they need to be in actually making the business plan. So that's fairly nuanced. You have to take a lot of time and basically look at a lot of deals and watch a lot of deals go full cycle to understand what can be done. And COVID is an interesting example that frankly, hopefully won't happen again in our lifetimes, but an interesting example on business plans being able to be executed in that all of these supply chain disruptions that we had that hopefully we're on the tail end of, but not we're not on the tail end quite yet, but they haven't ended quite yet. But things like um, stoves not being available or the price of lumber skyrocketing or being hard to find labor, that delays these business plans and makes them, you know, basically reduces your return since there's a time value of money in there. So that's a big one for me is getting a feeling of how conservative I feel the business plan is, particularly in a value add type of scenario. Do I feel they're going to be able to execute on it in the time frame that they projected or faster? Faster is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But are they saying it's going to be much faster than I think is feasible is a big one for me. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I haven't, I haven't heard that before the timing of the business plan, but that's critical, right? As you said, that everything functions off of that, especially IRR calculations. Now, turning a little bit to the market right now, how are you dealing with 
rising interest rates or the specter of rising interest rates when you're analyzing a deal that's on adjustable rate debt, right? Everyone's now looking for fixed debt deals, and but there's still a lot of the bridge debt, the adjustable rate debt, and some people are buying you know, rate caps. How are you managing all that? And how are you looking at that both as someone who is doing deals and also someone who is uh, investing passively? So I think buying rate caps is a great idea at this point, especially considering that we can't predict the future of interest rates. Yeah, they're currently headed upward and the Fed hasn't indicated that they're going to reverse course. So it seems like a reasonable assumption to say they're going to keep heading upward. So we should plan on increased rates. I think buying a rate cap is very reasonable. Long-term debt, I think, is also a good idea, but you need to understand some of the risks in there when it comes to potential prepayment penalties and things along those lines. And I think most syndicators should understand those things, but I've seen less savvy multifamily investors, more generally kind of mom and pop investors, get burned by prepayment penalties that they didn't really understand. Specifically, there have been folks that I spoke with that shifted from single family investing in California, cashed in on all that appreciation to invest in the Midwest, bought an apartment complex with a, a loan that they didn't understand the prepayment penalties on. Interest rates tanked. They also didn't manage the property manager adequately. So the NOI fell pretty considerably under their management, which is a completely different set of issues. But they wound up in a scenario where the property was underperforming and they were not able to sell without losing a lot of money because they had a huge prepayment penalty hanging over their heads. So they basically ended up getting foreclosed on. So it's just important to be aware of those things. Again, most sponsors should know about prepayment penalties and have a plan to deal with them, but just be aware of the terms of the deals that that you're getting into. I was looking at some of the news before we uh, started recording here. So it turns out that Q1 GDP was actually negative. They were expecting, I think, 1% positive, but GDP growth was actually one point something, I think it was 1.4% negative, which is not a great sign, but also not that surprising when we're talking about rates going up. There's some chatter right now, especially today, that people think that will cause the Fed to immediately reverse course and drop rates. I don't think so. The Fed hasn't indicated that. And also, that's not the Fed's mandate. The Fed has a dual mandate to go for stable prices and full employment. So stable prices, they've interpreted to mean modest inflation around 2%. And then full employment is basically minimizing unemployment, getting to a stable level there. Well, where do we stand today? Inflation is still very high, right? Still incredibly high. And unemployment is very low. There are a lot of jobs out there. So by my estimation, my reading the tea leaves, I don't think they're going to change course until those two things change, one or more of those things change. So until inflation returns to a reasonable level or until unemployment goes up and we're not there yet. So until that happens, I'm expecting rates to continue to rise. The rate at which the rates rise is a question mark. I don't really know that anybody can predict that. That's not a member of the Federal Reserve. We can only listen to what the Federal Reserve board members are saying and kind of try to make predictions on that. But right now, I'm looking at the Fed's dual mandate. And to me, that indicates that rates are still headed upward. Now, another thing that I'll throw out there is I recorded an episode for my podcast that came out today as we're recording about data that's come out from the Mortgage Bankers Association that mortgage applications are down. And this has been a continuing trend that mortgage applications are down. And that's something that we would expect, frankly, in a rising interest rate environment that's going to keep people from buying, right? So things are kind of behaving as expected in a way. I think the single family residential market is going to cool off, but that's probably going to take a while. Personally, I'm still involved in that market. My and this is now we're into anecdotes. We're away from data. Now we're into anecdotes. My fiance and I are currently house shopping. We, we own the place we live in now, but frankly, we want more space, right? So we've been involved for the last few months. We've been watching those mortgage rates go up. We've been made a ton of offers and 
we're putting in strong offers, but we're still getting outbid. Even today with all these rates going up, we're still losing on the bids and people see rates going up and they get more desperate because the rate is going to be higher in a month probably than it is today. So they want to get in, right? They swing at the ball so much harder if we're going off of the, <laughs> the baseball <laughs> the metaphor. Baseball, yeah. So that's really what I see right now as far as interest rates go and the, the impact on the economy. But overall, I still see rates going up until something changes with inflation and or unemployment. That was a really great explanation. I want to go back to the prepayment penalty you were talking mm -hmm. about. So you said sponsors should know about the prepayment penalty. I agree with that. What questions or what should an investor look for? As for, I mean, yeah, we can say, hey, is there a prepayment penalty? What is it? Is there anything else? Do we need to dig deeper when we're talking to the to the sponsor? Do we need to ask more questions about, because everyone's looking for fixed rate debt, right? That's the, there's posts in our forum all the time. Does anyone know sponsors who are using fixed rate debt? Well, that's great if they are, but the prepayment penalty can be a big issue, as you, noted, as you said. Mm -hmm. So how do we underwrite for that? How do we think about that as investors? So I think the first thing to do, and I would say I'm not the best person to explain these two things. I think it's best to have a, basically a banker or a mortgage person explain them to you. But two things to look up are yield maintenance and defeasance. We've talked about that on my podcast, but I would recommend looking up those and just learning about them to know what they are, two of the main types of prepayment penalties that are out there. And then I think if that's what an investor wants, now you you asked me a little bit earlier about questions that investors ask me that aren't useful. And I couldn't name a one because I don't think there are any questions that that aren't useful. Maybe there are questions that are naive and that's okay. It's not a great sin to be naive, right? We all start from where we start in terms of our knowledge, right? But the thing to do is to, in my opinion, go out and, and get educated on the topic before asking a question because you, frankly, you can save yourself a lot of time by listening to a podcast for a half an hour where somebody explains these things and then you have a better understanding rather than asking the sponsor a question and waiting for a response and maybe not quite understanding it. So take a little bit of time and there are so many free resources out there like podcasts where you can have somebody explain prepayment penalties to you. But as far as, you know, to again, address that, that earlier question. Yeah somebody asking a question that's less not useful or anything like that. I, I don't think those exist. There are naive questions, and but that's okay. I think a lot of that can be handled though through education to, again, address the question about prepayment penalties. I think it comes down to getting educated on what they are and then making the decision for yourself. I'm not going to go out and say that people shouldn't look for deals with long-term debt for reasons X, Y, and Z. If you understand what long-term debt is versus short-term debt, you understand how prepayment penalties work, then make your own decision about it. If that's what you want to invest in, go for it. I'm not going to say one is better than the other because we all have different goals in our real estate investing and are investing more broadly with our portfolios. So understand it and then make your own call. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, I like how you answered the question about when people ask naive questions or you know, like I termed it unnecessary questions, there aren't any. It's nice to hear that from a sponsor because I think a lot of investors, especially when they're new, they're nervous about talking to a sponsor for the first time. So, you know, at, at Leftfield Investors, we have a checklist. So it helps you kind of, okay, here's some of the stuff you want answered. But knowing from your perspective of that of a sponsor that, hey, if I ask the, you know, quote unquote, stupid question or naive question, that's okay, right? Because as you said, we're all starting from somewhere and we don't have perfect knowledge. And so don't worry about whether your question is a good one or not. If it's a question you have, ask it. And you can tell a lot by the answer, right? If you get an answer where someone's like, oh, that's a stupid question. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't say that, but that would be, mm -hmm. okay, conversation over. I'm moving on to somebody else. Like you said, the FOMO thing, there's plenty of sponsors out there. If they're not answering the questions the way you like, move on to the next one. I mean, that, that would make sense to me. So you talked also about interest rates, how you think they're going to keep going up until some of those other things change, unemployment or um, inflation. So what asset classes are you looking at now that you think will perform you know, better than others over the next few years in this environment? I know that's a hard question to answer, but kind of what are you looking at? So you asked me before we were recording, or we had a conversation about shiny object syndrome, right? And 
I think whether individuals are, say, prone to having shiny object syndrome, it's different for everybody. I'm prone to having shiny object syndrome, but I understand that. And I take active steps to limit myself from feeling shiny object syndrome. So my primary asset classes that I'm interested in and I invest in are multifamily and self-storage. I may start investing in mobile home parks later this year. We're going to see about that, but really not getting distracted from those two main asset classes. So that's what I'm focusing on. I'm not personally allowing some of the fears of rising interest rates or inflation or anything like that change my asset class. It may change the way in which we invest in those asset classes and the strategies that we employ, but I'm still focused on those asset classes. And in a broader sense, more macroeconomically, setting interest rates aside, we still have an enormous shortage of housing in this country. Most markets, most cities, frankly, don't have enough doors to house all of the people that live within them. And I still see that as a very bullish sign, especially from a multifamily investing standpoint. Furthermore, going back to this experience of buying ourselves a new house, it's very competitive out there, which means people are having a hard time shifting from renting to owning, and that's going to force people to remain renters. If I could wave a magic wand and fix that problem, frankly, I would, because I think that would be better for everybody. But the reality is that magic wand doesn't exist. And that scarcity in housing is still going to favor housing investors. But we need to always have our eye on our business plans and the financials, especially the debt. So we should be aware of it. But at least for me, I'm still staying focused on those asset classes to again, not get distracted by shiny object syndrome. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, that's always a challenge for me to uh, stay away from the shiny objects mm -hmm. as well. So you said that you're going to change the way you invest in those asset classes, perhaps, but you're going to focus on those same asset classes. And I love that approach. What are some of the things that you're doing differently or that you envision that you might do differently as the markets changes and interest rates go up, if inflation keeps going, how are you going to invest in those those asset classes, self-storage and multifamily, what are you going to do differently? So I would say I'm a pretty conservative investor, and that's just kind of the way that I've been, generally speaking. I think now in particular, like we talked about buying rate caps before, I think that's more relevant today than it was, say, maybe five years ago. For myself, the changes in my investing strategy have come less from shifts in the market than just learning more about how the business works and ways in which deals can go right versus wrong. I think, again, my investing strategy has been more influenced by my own learning and development and building my network and learning from talking to other passive investors because I get so many more lessons and really multiply my ability to learn by having a half an hour, an hour long conversation with people who passively invest in you know, real estate syndications. Uh, just to give you an example, so I attend the best ever conference every year uh, out in Denver, and then next year it's going to be in Salt Lake City. But during the pandemic, right, it was, it was online. And one of the things that they provided were little mastermind groups. Well, that was back in 2021. Now here we are in 2022. My mastermind group still meets. We meet every six weeks and we just have an hour or two hour long conversation people from all over the country. We just learn from each other, talk about sponsors that people are investing with, how those deals are going, whose K-1s were late. And K-1s are late sometimes, that's that's okay, but how did they communicate that? How did they handle those things? Uh, when, you know, We just have those detailed conversations. And you know what? It's not just the people in that group who we get to learn from, but it's the people that they know right? Because they, you know, and this is where you kind of get into a little bit of game of telephone. You have to be a little more careful about what you learn and pick up in those groups, but you can still learn a lot of information just through networking, you know, and getting to know each other. So again, building those lessons and, and learning and building my knowledge base in the business has had more of an impact on my investing strategy than changes in the market. Maybe I'll be a little more focused on hedging against increased interest rates, I think is very important. But that's, again, less of an impact than my own personal development in the space. That was so well said. You know, I mean, you you are talking about the power of community, right? The totally. power of a network. And that's what we talk about 
all the time at Left Field Investors. And that little mastermind that you guys turned into something that's ongoing. I mean, how powerful is that? And that's why, you know, Left Field Investors, we have all kinds of networking opportunities that we're trying out just to see if it works. We have our mound visits for infielders, which is just an informal meeting where people get together on a audio app and chat for an hour. And it's been phenomenal. And then we have another one where we're connecting people one-to-one for networking. And it really, the, your knowledge grows as your network grows. And you said it wonderfully. And, and that's, you know, I, I've learned that through, you know, the community that we have is, is I'm getting, I'm a much better investor than I was a few years ago. And it's all because of the community. So that was really well said. So the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast you listen to? You cannot say Passive Wealth Strategies Show. That's a fantastic podcast. It will be in the show notes, but that's your podcast, so it can't be yours. So give me another podcast that you like to listen to. Can I say left field investors? No, I won't play to the host here. I would say probably one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is the Jordan Harbinger show. It's not an investing show, but he he gets into a lot of general, maybe not general interest stories, but a lot of human interest stories. He talks with former FBI agents and undercover operatives and, and YouTubers. Well, he had one recently of a YouTuber that formerly lived in China and talks about how he got out of China and came back to the United States. Like so many interesting stories and people. And I think you can learn a lot about maybe the seedy underbelly of things that go on in our society by listening to, you know, former CIA agents or undercover operatives or things along those lines. Very fascinating stuff and great to listen to. I like that. I definitely will uh, will give that a try. And so if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about NT Capital, how can how what's the best way to do that? Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'll tell you, um, once I realized I was going to be on your show, I thought, I want to put something together for your listeners that's going to deliver value for them. So I put together a free seven-day video course on passive real estate investing red flags. And a lot of times when people say that, it's kind of BS. It's just content that they have that they rebrand. No, I made this for you guys. I'm going to be talking about it on other shows, given in other places, but coming on this show was the genesis of that content. Seven real estate investing red flags for passive investors. You can get that by going to passiverealestatecourse.com. Of course, you can you know get links to my show, my podcast, and everything like that. Get in touch with me, learn about our investing club, all that kind of thing. But First off, I think there are a lot more lessons that I get into and specifics that I talk about in real estate syndication investing, a few lessons that I've learned and also lessons that I've learned through my network, going back to that, that we discuss in that course. It doesn't take you to, long to get through and uh, really worked to hone that down to make sure there's it's very lesson and knowledge packed. So PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. That's fantastic. PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. I'm definitely going to check that out and I recommend everyone else do the same. So Taylor, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Mag Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. I got quite a few great nuggets of wisdom there from Taylor. What a great conversation. He talked about no current benefit from investing in the market or putting all of your money in retirement accounts. And I could not agree more. Obviously, you need to save for retirement. But when you're doing it in the market in these paper speculative assets, there is no current benefit. With the syndications we're doing, we have current benefit and we have a benefit later when the asset sells. So I really liked him talking about that. So he talked about how he finds sponsors, similar to how we were talking about it in left field. He asks his network about sponsors rather than asking the sponsor for references. And that is exactly what we're doing at Left Field Investors. We encourage you to use the community to find sponsors, ask about sponsors and help in your vetting process. So we, we definitely matched up on that. He talked about the fear of missing out FOMO. 
you know, more deals are coming. There's other sponsors out there. If you are feeling pressure to get into a deal, wait for the next one. Go to a different sponsor. You don't have to feel pressure for this deal or that deal. There's always another one coming down the road. And so FOMO, turn it into JOMO, as MC Laubscher says, the joy of missing out. Relish that you missed this one. Get more prepared and get ready for the next one. So that was really good advice. And then he does not only evaluate the business plan, he evaluates the timing of it. Because as you know, that can affect the IRR and everything else. So I thought that was super powerful, how he said he he looks at the timing of the business plan, not just the business plan. And then talking about debt, he likes the rate caps, maybe more than long-term debt because of the penalties that come with long-term debt. So that's a question we should be asking. Everyone is concerned with interest rates and is looking for agency debt and long-term debt. And here, maybe short-term debt with a rate cap is better than long-term debt with a big penalty. Each investor has to make their own decisions and analyze it themselves, but rate caps aren't looking so bad. And maybe long-term debt, we need to start asking more specifically about prepayment penalties. So that's really great advice. And then finally, again, back to the network, his strategies, Taylor changes his investing strategies the more he learns, and he's doing most of his learning from his network and his community. And that makes sense, right? But I think to recognize that, to really see, hey, we are making changes to our strategies, maybe because of the market, but more so because of we're learning and everyone's going through that. So that was a great conversation with Taylor. I really appreciate him coming on the show. He was gracious enough to have me on his podcast long ago, and he was one of the first ones. So he really got me started on that podcast circuit. So I do appreciate that. And also, you might notice a little bit louder volume. That's a shout out to Chad. He said, I sound like I whisper when I do my after talks. And I think I just talk louder when there's somebody in the room. So I'll try to make the volume more consistent. So thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>